The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is coming from Isaiah 9, 6, and 10, 20, and 21. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. <clears throat> and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth a remnant will return, and the remnant of Jacob to the Almighty God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Mac. Uh, good morning. My, my name is Learet Fesco, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It's wonderful to be with you all on this second Sunday of Advent. Please join me in a word of prayer as we uh, look into these passages today. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sure uh, because it was given to us by you. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us and open our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds to be receivers of your word. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Perhaps you've heard this ancient proverb before. Some of you know that uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area right up until I started high school. When I started high school, my dad changed jobs, which took us all the way across the country to Atlanta, Georgia. When I arrived in the South, one of the first things that I noticed right away was the fact that everyone, it seemed, everyone seemed to love college football. I couldn't get over it. So, so back in the 80s in California, sure, there were some people that liked college football. Uh, from, a for, from a sports standpoint, back then, it was hard to compete with the city's professional football team, the San Francisco 49ers, the greatest professional franchise, sports franchise in the world. No one really paid attention to college football back then. We had a football dynasty. So when I got to Atlanta, home of the Atlanta Falcons, nobody cared about professional football there. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, oh no, is he about to use a football illustration of some kind? Yes, but listen, more sympathetic I could not be. I, I, I had some awareness of what was going on in college football, and I have some awareness now what's going on, but, but I have no strong allegiance to any of the teams that you hear people talk about around here. Around here, as it was in Atlanta, all anyone seemed to want to talk about was SEC football. When I got to Atlanta, I remember thinking, what, what, what even is that? Bulldogs, volunteers, and, and no kidding, the first time I had a conversation with someone about this, they told me, and I quote, bulldogs, volunteers, Auburn, and so I asked, what is an Auburn? I, I thought that was the name of the mascot. No, it's the Tigers, War Eagle, that's a lot of words. But what strikes me about college football, and you can say that about athletics in general, is that you can clearly see this proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You can clearly see this on display all the time. 
you will hear people say, for instance, I can't stand the University of Michigan unless they're playing the University of Alabama. Then at least for one day, I will be cheering for the University of Michigan. All the time, all the time this happens. The same thing happens on the individual level too. You may despise a certain player until that player causes your rival to lose. Then you love that player. In fact, even in college now, it's easy for players to switch teams after a season and, and you'll despise a certain player until that player joins your team. Then you love that player. There was a comedian who once said, at the end of the day, we're all just cheering for a bunch of laundry. <laughs> That's what it ultimately boils down to. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That is the proverb. And to be clear, it's not a proverb that you'll find in our Bible because the fact of the matter is that it's not wise to hold to this proverb because what you'll find more often than not is that the enemy of your enemy is your enemy. Believe it or not, this is what you'll find to be true when you get to digging around the context of the passages that we're looking at today in Isaiah. We only have a handful of verses this morning, uh, but it's so important to understand the context around any given verse that you're reading in the Bible. So what I want to provide you with is just a little bit of context to help you understand what we're talking about in Isaiah 9 and 10, okay? So, so the first thing, first things first, Isaiah is a prophet. Isaiah is a prophet, a man who was called by God to speak on God's behalf to the people of God. Specifically for Isaiah, he addressed the leaders of God's people. He was bringing to them a word of judgment. Because these leaders lived in rebellion against their covenant with God, they continually wandered away from the Lord, falling into practices of idolatry, and, and that would lead to, inevitably lead to corruption, ignoring justice, oppression of the poor, and offering up hypocritical sacrifices to God. So, so here's the message that Isaiah brought to them. He basically said, your rebellion will be met with judgment. You've been warned over and over again, so now the Lord is going to give you over to your sin. And here's how, he's going to play. Here's how, here's how that's going to play out. The Lord is going to use the neighboring empires of Assyria and later on Babylon to judge Jerusalem. Now, I've asked our media team uh, to help me out by putting up a map on the screen here because I want you to see visually what's going on here. Before we go any further, what you need to know and what you need to realize that in the book of Isaiah, Assyria and Babylon are the bad guys, okay? And, and for where we are in Isaiah, the bad guys we're talking about right now in this specific chapter is Assyria, okay? Assyria is the enemy. The next thing that you need to notice are the two lowermost nations there on the left side, Israel and Judah. When we think of the Old Testament, when we think of the people of the Old Testament, we think of the nation of Israel. Beginning in the book of Joshua, the people of God were led into the promised land by the Lord. And up here on the map where you see Israel and Judah, that territory for the most part was the promised land, the one nation called Israel. That was the case through the reign of David and into the reign of his son Solomon, but then it was in the reign of his son Rehoboam, Solomon's son Rehoboam, where Israel divided into two nations, the northern and the southern kingdom, which are Israel and Judah. So the map reflects this divided nation that was once all Israel. Now, though the northern kingdom is called Israel, you'll notice that it's in the southern kingdom of Judah, 
where the city of Jerusalem lies, and in it, the temple at Jerusalem. So, insofar as the people of God are concerned, Jerusalem is still the focal point for God's people because that's where the temple sat, in Jerusalem, in Judah. Now, where we are in Isaiah at this point, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, his name is Ahaz. And Ahaz is in a bit of a predicament. The nations of Israel and Aram, also called Syria, feel the need to form an alliance to protect themselves from the aggression of the Assyrian Empire, which you'll see depicted there on the far, on the far right. Okay? Remember them. They're the bad guys. So the nations of Israel and Aram begin to pressure Ahaz, the king of Judah, and even threaten him. They, they want him to join their alliance. Join our alliance or else. Join our alliance or we'll, we'll come take you out and put in a king that will join our alliance. And eventually they do end up attacking Judah. So what does Ahaz do? Well, I'll tell you what Ahaz should have done. Ahaz should have listened to Isaiah. Isaiah came to Ahaz in chapter 7 of Isaiah and pleads with him to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord, Ahaz. Trust him for protection. Live and act faithfully and experience the blessing of God. Fear not, Ahaz, and don't lose heart. These two nations pose no threat to you if you put your trust in the Lord. Ahaz, king of Judah, trust the Lord. Isaiah then told Ahaz, the, the Lord is going to show you a sign, a miraculous sign of God's faithfulness. There will be a child born of a young woman, a virgin, and this child will be called Emmanuel, God with us, because Ahaz, God is with us. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I recognize that. You're talking about Jesus. That, that's what this season of Advent is all about, right? Yes, absolutely right. But something you need to remember about the prophecies of the Old Testament is that they usually had a singular meaning but double significance. There was an immediate near-term fulfillment to the prophecy, and then there was a long-term fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The near-term fulfillment was Isaiah telling Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign. Ask him for a sign, Ahaz, and he'll give it to you. He'll give you Emmanuel, God with us, God with you, Ahaz. But guess what? Ahaz took matters into his own hands, and instead of trusting the Lord, instead of believing the Lord would be his mighty God, instead of turning to the Lord, he turned to, any guesses? Assyria. He turned to Assyria. Remember them? They're the bad guys. You can, you can take the map down now. Ahaz thought, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In effect, what Ahaz said was, I will trust my enemy over the sovereign Lord. Now, now that seems pretty foolish, doesn't it? Okay, here's the rub. How often do we do the very same thing? You know, it's not just that we put trust in other things over the Lord. We have a tendency to trust our enemy. The, the thing that is actively working against us over the loving, watchful, sacrificial care of our Lord. But here's the reality. The other things, whatever they may be, whatever it is that causes you to move your focus off of Christ, that is your enemy. That thing is now working against you. There's nothing innocuous in your life. There's nothing innocuous in your life. Any given thing is either pushing you towards trusting in the Lord or it's pulling you away. 
I'm sure Ahaz thought this was a very practical solution. I'll appeal to the empire that's stronger than the two nations that are harassing me. But the only problem with that is that Isaiah was telling Ahaz, no, Ahaz, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. Ahaz didn't trust the Lord. Instead of drawing near to God, he drew near to Assyria. So what did God do? God said through Isaiah, okay, if it's Assyria that you want, it's Assyria that you'll have. Let's see how this goes. I don't know if you like dogs or not. Our, our family has for many years, uh, we've had uh, at least uh, one or two dogs around the house. And, and here's the thing about dogs. If you don't train the dog, at least on some level, right, you're going to have a miserable experience with the dog. We had a dog for a good while who, who just recently we had to say goodbye to. That, that dog required all sorts of training. We, we had to put time into training her. Yes, for our own sanity, but also for her protection. So we learned early on in her life that, for instance, this dog liked dirty socks. She liked to eat them. Dogs don't do well when they eat socks. Just trust me on that. That's free advice. We had to train the dog, no, don't eat that. Don't take it. It's bad for you. And it's really hard to reason with a dog. I so often wanted to just somehow talk to the dog and say, don't eat these, they're really bad for you. And I would imagine that she would say right back to me, but I like them. I believe dogs, uh, God gave us dogs to see characters of ourselves. I really believe that. We, we have a backyard and we would let the dog run around in it, but, but many, like many yards, there are things that we don't want the dog to get into. So, so you have to teach the dog, no, go, don't go near that. For instance, we often have cherry tomatoes growing in the backyard. And something that we learn, red tomatoes in and of themselves are generally harmless for dogs. Green tomatoes and the green vines on which they grow are very bad for dogs, poisonous. So we got the dog a collar. And what this collar does when the dog gets too close to something it shouldn't be around is that collar beeps and sprays a citronella scented mist in front of the dog. Dogs don't like that. You thought I was going to say shock the dog, didn't you? I know you were thinking that. It just sprayed. Okay? In other words, this is what we're doing to train the dog and, and discipline the dog. We are, in effect, going to let the dog get close to the thing that we don't want it to get close to. And we're going to let the dog experience the effects of getting close to the thing that we told it not to get close to. We let the dog feel the negative effects of doing the thing we told it not to do so it doesn't do that thing anymore. Go on, go near the tomato plants. Go ahead, Ruby. Let's, let's see how that works out. The Lord allowed Ahaz to draw near to his enemy, the thing he put his trust in as a means of judgment against Ahaz. Okay, I'm going to let you have the thing that you want, and I'm going to let you feel the negative effects of what happens when you draw near to your enemy, to the thing that ultimately seeks to harm you. And I'm going to use that to judge you. Now, how do you think Assyria responded when Ahaz tried to ally with them? I'll tell you what they said. They said, yeah, okay. 
And, and, Judah entered, uh, and, and Judah endured the yoke of Assyria even, even after Ahaz died. All this detail, by the way, runs parallel to where we are in the book of Isaiah in 2 Kings chapter 16 to, to 18 about. And I'm just pulling all these pieces together for you. But do you see how the Lord operates? This seems to be His pattern. Not only for, his, not only for the people of the Old Testament, but this is how He, he disciplines or disciples. This is how He disciples us too. He says, okay, I'm going I'm to let you chase after the thing you want. And I'm going to let you feel it sting. But here's the difference. Here's the difference between what we read as judgment in the Old Testament and the discipline that He gives you and me. You and me, for you and me, for those that believe in Jesus, judgment is over. Judgment is done. Christ endured the judgment for our sin in its entirety. We no longer have to bear the burden of judgment. However, the Lord still disciplines the ones He loves. Hebrews 12, 6-7 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So even though, even though Jesus has carried the weight of our judgment, the means of discipline is still very much the same as it was for people like Ahaz. If you're a Christian, there's nothing that happens to you. There's nothing that happens to you. Nothing that doesn't work toward your sanctification, toward your discipline as a disciple, as a learner of Christ. So yes, the Lord will allow you to draw near to the thing that means you harm. He'll let you have your way. He'll let you try and take comfort in the things that ultimately mean you harm. Money, sex, power. It could be any number of things. He'll let you draw near to those things and, yes, even let you feel their sting. You see, the Lord ordains whatsoever comes to pass. There's not a single molecule in the universe or beyond that isn't subject to His control. But when bad things happen, and in particular, when we sin, it's not that the Lord is making us sin. All, all he needs to do is momentarily lift his hands off the kicking and screaming people that we are and let us run to the thing that hurts us. And, and then we turn around and say to him, why did you do that? And the Lord says, as he says to Ahaz, this is what you wanted. This is the thing you wanted. This is the thing that you, you wanted to put your trust in. But listen, I, I said at the start of our time that the book of Isaiah is a book of judgment. Isaiah brought with him a word of judgment for the people of God, but the Lord's judgment is accompanied by hope. The Lord's discipline is a mechanism of hope. Now, now we're back to the verse that we started with. Though Isaiah warned Ahaz, and though the Lord allowed Ahaz to draw near to his enemy and even feel the betrayal and destruction of his enemy, Isaiah also says this once again. Now you have context here. Isaiah 10, 20 to 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the, the people of God, not, not just Judah, the people of God and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck him. No more lean on Assyria. No more lean on Babylon, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. There's an expansive view to what the prophet Isaiah is saying here. Again, it's not just a short-term prophecy. It has a long, view, a long view in mind, a long view in Christ. This speaks of a future when all the punishment at the hands of the nations will be over and the purified remnant of God's people will be brought home. This includes you. This includes you too. Here's what the Lord is saying here. 
He's saying that that he's going to preserve a remnant. And and when he says that, he wants to assure his readers that no matter how great Assyria or Babylon or whatever it is that you may have for a season placed your trust in over him, however great those things may be, they will never be able to destroy God's people. Never. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. We just sang that. When Isaiah speaks about a, a mighty God... This is what he means. Look over the spectrum of history. Think of the aggressions that our enemy has made against the church, yet here it stands. The remnant remains. We're still here, or more directly. How many times have we wandered off and chased after the things we believe will will bring us greater comfort than, than the comfort of Christ? Try as we might to trip ourselves up. Here we stand. We're justified. The people of God, we are justified, but not because of us, but because of who He is. He is mighty. He is a mighty God who will not be defeated. Many of you know I was uh, ordained to be one of the pastors of this church uh, earlier this summer. Uh, I was previously ordained in another denomination, but uh, to be ordained in this denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, part of what they require of you is to have a working knowledge of the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. So, Though I had graduated from seminary, the degree I completed didn't require me to take the full two years of of languages. So before I became a pastor in the PCA, Pastor David Filson, one of the pastors here, he encouraged me. He was overseeing my ordination, and uh, when I was first brought into this church, he was the one who told me how important it is to study these languages. So he asked me to complete my Greek and Hebrew studies before I became one of the pastors here. So initially I told David, I I think I can do this in in, uh, 12 to 18 months. I was wrong. It took me a bit longer uh, with interruptions from from COVID. This was a season where my my father passed away. It ended up taking me about four years, four years. But as I was going uh, through my ordination examinations, you know, once I was finishing up, There was someone who was on the panel who expressed his appreciation over the fact that I I took the long road to get to this point. He said something to the effect of, though you could have taken the extraordinary exception route and skipped over the languages, what? (laughs) (laughs) What did you say? (laughs) David, what did he say? I'm kidding. David told me about the exceptions. He did. He told me in advance. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the fact that he took me the long way. Uh, The the Hebrew language, for instance, is the language that the Lord chose to write down his word in most of the Old Testament here in the book of Isaiah. And the burden the Bible translators have to bear through the centuries is the burden to accurately and precisely translate the original words that were put on those scrolls. And they've done a marvelous job of doing that that overwhelming task in so many different languages. But every once in a while, you stumble across something in the original language that, yes, is is accurately translated, but, but, but you're afforded a little more depth in understanding it in the original language. And no, I'm not saying that all of us should now go and study Greek and Hebrew, but what I'm asking you is take my word for this. Take my word for this and let me be the one that maybe gets to explain it to you, maybe for the first time. Mighty God, mighty God, El Gibor. That's what it says in the original language. And yes, mighty God is a good translation, but when you see how that word Gibor is used 
Everywhere else in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, it's used in the context of a warrior. He is God. He is the God who is the mighty warrior. And this mighty warrior fights for you. He is for you. He is a warrior who cannot and will not be conquered. He cannot and will not be defeated. And he fights for you. It makes no sense to ally with anyone or anything else because he can and defeat, and he does defeat your greatest enemies. He tells us, despite the fact that that you put your trust in other things, I will defeat your enemies and I will preserve you. Back in the book of Exodus, when the people of God were boxed in between the Red Sea and the Egyptian armies, the people threw up their arms and screamed at Moses, you know, why have you brought us out here? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you needed to bring us out here? And what you have to realize is that the true events of the Exodus, events that actually and really happened, though they were real events, they are analogous to our own journey of salvation. Our enemy had us boxed in. Though we had nowhere to turn, though we had no ability to save ourselves, though we often work against his work to preserve us and we grumble at him, He tells us the same thing that he told Moses, that that Moses told the the people of, of God as they faced the Red Sea, Exodus 14, 13 to 14. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, for your sin that you will see today, you shall never see again. It'll be cast away. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. That's your part. You have only to be silent. Friends, the Lord, the mighty one, the warrior God, will fight for you. He has defeated your enemies. The Lord preserves his people because he fights for his people. I want you to notice what what Moses said. It was very similar to what Isaiah said to Ahaz. He told him, fear not. The Lord fights for you. And Ahaz said, thanks, but no thanks. I'll put my trust in Assyria. He should have listened to Isaiah. It's been an interesting season in the life of our church, to say the least. Our pastor of 12 years is is no longer here. And how did that happen? I I give you my word, the leadership of this church is trying to sort that out, and and we're, we're determined to make corrections to ensure that we never have to go through something like this again. As Pastor Filson has said numerous times, leadership does not happen in a vacuum. We can't place the blame for all that's happened on one person, not by a long shot. So how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? King Ahaz was given a choice. Listen to the word of the Lord. Listen to God's word. Listen to the Lord or see what happens. And, and, don't, and again, don't, don't, don't hear that as a threat from a God who has a fragile ego. Hear it as a word of warning from a God who loves his people, but will allow them to go through the fires of refinement to see them ultimately flourish. King Ahaz was given a choice, and he chose to set aside the word of God. I don't need God's word. I, I just, I'll just use Assyria. So, so what do we do? What do we do? How do we keep ourselves from making the same mistakes, from repeating our mistakes First things first, we have to realize we can't keep ourselves from repeating our mistakes. If left to ourselves, we will repeat them. We have to realize it's the Lord who fights for us, and we need to draw near to Him. So how do we do that? How do we draw near to the Lord? 
Do you know the next senior pastor that comes to this church will come here at the direction of this congregation, the members of this church, the members of Christ Presbyterian Church? So how do we get this right? Well, first of all, we as the leaders of Christ Pres need to point you to the Word. We need to reveal the Word of God to you. That's what we've been called to do. And if we don't show you the Word, we have no hope. And I promise you, the pastors here are committed to revealing the Word of God to you. I promise you. But second, I would challenge you, the people of Christ Pres, to be receivers of the Word. Commit yourselves to seeking the Lord as He is revealed in His Word. If you want to find the Lord, I promise you'll find Him on every page of the Scriptures. Seek the Lord in His Word, you will find Him. The members of this church will choose a committee that will search for our next pastor. It will pick the people who will find the person. Friends, let's commit to each other right now. Let's commit to each other right now that we'll begin praying for that process right now if we haven't already. Let's pray now for the people that we'll pick to find the next pastor. Let's appeal to his word and appeal to him in prayer that we seek him first, that we put our trust in the Lord, not our trust in our own ability and our own intelligence to get this right. Let's commit to each other that before we assemble in a congregational meeting to form the pastoral search committee, that we first, weeks in advance, assemble to pray, to petition the Lord for guidance and mercy, that the Lord would go before us and fight for us. Let's promise each other that, that we will do this because if we don't seek the Lord in His Word and in prayer, we will certainly repeat the mistakes of our past. And here's, here's the big secret. That's not just true for this moment here at Christ Pres. That's true for all of life. Let us seek the one who fights for us, the mighty warrior, and let's trust Him. Let us seek the one who gave His body and His blood so that we might be preserved. He fights for us, not, not with a clashing sword, but by laying down his life so that we might have life in him. Would you pray with me? Father, please hear us. Please help us each day to put our trust in you, our mighty God, who has and will fight for us. May everything that tries to distract us from, from putting our trust in you, may it wither away. And may we fall in love with you. Give us a hunger. Give us a thirst for your word. Give us longing to seek you in prayer in all matters that we encounter. Thank you for the one who gave his body and his blood that we might be brought near to you. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.